I actually read this book almost cover to cover, which I have not done to an RPG book in a long time. Except for all the ones that we reviewed. Uh, No, even those. Live from the Mundangerous Generic B-Roll Background Location in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 129 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're reviewing Fantasy Flight Games' newest, though very familiar, release, Genesis. We'll walk you through it cover to cover and let you know whether it's worth adding to your collection. So before we get to that, just one quick follow-up. Uh, last episode, we talked about the Birthright campaign setting from AD&D and had one follow-up question from user TonySR1 on Twitter. Uh, he says, It was interesting, but a little unclear how much of the play session is realm level versus character level. This is pretty much up to you and the party and your GM deciding how much of the time you want to spend... Uh, basically looking at the entire world map and you know playing sort of like risk and how much of the time you want to spend sort of adventuring um, you know on a round-to-round basis as an actual player character so let's take a step back and kind of remind everybody how the realm level uh, rounds work so you play each turn is basically a season so there's three months in a season um, and you'll each take one action on each of those uh, months. And adventuring is one of the actions you can take in a given month. So generally, uh, the way it works is you have to all adventure at the same time, or else you end up with a lot of people sitting idly in a session. Um, But yeah, we, we usually end up playing maybe one to two seasons at least, and then we agree that there's something that we need to handle with an adventure, and then we'll all go adventure. Yeah, and it'll be, okay, um, you know, two seasons from now, we're going to go do this uh, adventure together that requires having regents all in one physical location together. Right. So prepare for that. And then the other side of that is within a number of sessions, right? So we usually play through at least one season in a session. Sometimes we can get aggressive and play two, um, but time-wise it usually takes us about you know, three hours to play like two to three hours to play through one season. So three turns. Yeah. And you know, you could have uh, an entire birthright game where you never get down to the character level. That's probably not going to be the majority of games because it is fun to, you know, be sitting on the throne and then an assassin tries to take you out. Um, and then you actually can quickly zoom in and just play out one simple encounter rather than like an entire month of adventuring and then, you know, zoom right back up. You probably right. aren't going to have a birthright game where you're not doing any realm level management um, unless you are specifically using the setting of Cerulea where um, you have additional powers based on your bloodline and your sort of a, the divine blood of the gods that, that um, regents have in them. Um, but that would be basically just sort of like normal D&D uh, without dealing with the extra abilities like realm magic or, you know, high level diplomacy and, and like court actions. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's like you said at the beginning, it's totally a group thing. So uh, after you play 
like a year in your realm, sometimes you feel like, hey, we should go, you know, solve a problem ourselves once in a while, like get back to playing D&D because I have this whole other half of my character sheet I want to use. Yeah, you kind of get that itch. And Jim, you know, our, our GM for this game sort of pushes us toward that direction. He'll be like, you know, the people are getting a bit antsy. They feel like you're just sitting on your throne not doing anything. Um, you think it might help if you make a, a public appearance or, you know, go handle the bandits yourself. Right. Okay, so let's move on to the review of Genesis itself. So today we're talking about Fantasy Flight Games Genesis, which stands for Generic System. It's supposed to be uh, an RPG that lets you play pretty much any kind of setting you want, whether it's fantasy or, you know, Star Wars space opera or far future android body cyberpunk hacking. Right. It came out in November. Uh, We are a couple of months uh, late on getting you this review because we weren't sure if we were going to do a review of it. Um, A bit of a disclaimer, we have gotten a free copy of the book from uh, Fantasy Flight, although I'm actually surprised that happened. Well, they also sent us a free set of dice, so thank you very much to Fantasy Flight Games. (laughs) So, Shane, tell us a bit about the book itself, because you're currently holding it in your hands. I am. Uh, So it's about 260 pages uh, in full color with illustrations. It's kind of a combination of blueprint style line sketches um, and then some color paintings as well fully rendered paintings Um, so it's interesting it kind of gives you that feeling of um, being a work in progress sort of toolkit sort of uh, ready to build kind of art uh, theme to it which is nice reinforcing the book itself yeah we'll see that that's pretty appropriate then it retails for $40 MSRP in hardback and $20 in PDF on you know, DriveThruRPG or any of those places. Now, you did say that uh, Fantasy Flight sent us a pack of dice. That's important because you can't use your normal polyhedral dice for this game. There are proprietary dice that you need to buy, and they're $15 a pack. You can, if you want to, uh, download... Uh, a dice app for ios or android but that'll also cost you five dollars and there are free dice rolling apps available online as well they'll be on a website right not an app native but uh yeah now uh, for those of you who know a bit about genesis you know it's uh based on or it's similar to the star wars edge of the empire game that fantasy flight put out a few years ago and that is actually still in print Um, You can use the dice that you bought for Edge of the Empire with Genesis, but keep in mind that the symbols are slightly different. Um, For some people, that's going to be a problem. It's going to be tough to sort of differentiate and remember exactly what the symbols mean. For other people, I think pretty quickly you'll adapt and you'll just sort of have trouble distinguishing between two different kinds of um, advantage or threat, and you'll just sort of see them as the same thing. Yeah, so the dice are named the same. Um, They are the same color. They have different symbols printed on them, but they have the same distribution. So as long as you're good at recognizing this is advantage or disadvantage, this is success or failure, this is triumph or despair, you can play with either set. It's just that you'll have to translate between the actual symbol printed on the dice versus the character sheets. There is a chart, a kind of complicated chart, that lets you take uh, D6s, D8s, and D12s and sort of match them to the different Uh, symbols on the dice so you could play without the proprietary dice but that ends up being very complicated and really bogs down the system yeah and and in that 15 dollar pack of dice you get 11 dice um most people 
going off of Star Wars and, and also sort of initial uh, comments on the system, most people think one pack of dice is fine for one character and that two packs of dice are probably necessary if you plan to share your dice across the table. So just keep that in mind in terms of the uh, amount that you're going to need to spend in order to get up and running. All right, so the book itself is divided into three parts. There's rules, settings, and the GM's toolkit. So let's start off with the rules. So it begins with the core mechanics. And again, if you're familiar with the Star Wars line from Fantasy Flight, you'll know these core mechanics. Uh, it's it's a narrative dice pool. They call it the narrative dice system. Um, it doesn't give you binary resolution of of events as either success or failure. It gives you uh, sort of a gradient between success failure as well as generating advantages and disadvantages. Or it can be a combination. You can succeed with despair or fail with triumph, etc. Right. Um, and it, it's a very open-ended sort of dice mechanic that lets the players at the table as well as the GM interpret what those dice mean and uh, decide how that affects the narrative of the game. I think uh, for people who've played Edge of the Empire, the feedback that they've given has been pretty much exclusively either I hate the narrative dice system or I love the narrative dice system. And I think that's important for you to figure out in order to determine whether you and your group is actually going to like Genesis. Um, It's a different kind of system than almost any other RPG out there. Um, There's not really any math involved. You're essentially building a dice pool, depending on the circumstances, rolling those dice, uh, matching up symbols, which some, some of which cancel each other out. And then improvising the GM essentially improvises the results based on the guidance given by the result on the dice. Right. So let's talk just a little bit about how this works. Um, There are two kinds of dice. There are positive dice and negative dice. On the positive side, you have boost dice, which represent environmental factors in your favor. Uh, Then you've got ability dice, which represent um, how, like, your natural aptitude, the natural aptitudes of your character. Um, In D&D terms, this would be your ability scores. Right. And then you have proficiency dice, which represent your skills. Each of these dice are an increasing size as well. So boost dice are D6s, ability dice are D8s, and proficiency dice are D12s. And the distribution of symbols on them also changes uh, as you go higher up. So proficiency dice are the only ones that can roll triumph, which makes them sort of great to roll, Um, whereas um, boost dice are more inclined towards uh, moderate results, right? Advantages or um, blanks. So on those positive dice, uh, you have a distribution of positive symbols, good results that you want to see when you end up rolling this dice pool. Uh, You have success, um, and you need at least one success in order to say that you um, accomplished the task that you were trying to accomplish. Then you also have advantage, which are um, situational uh, benefits that you're able to use to activate different kinds of abilities, whether that's um, a critical hit, Uh, on a weapon attack or being able to trip somebody when you're uh, punching them. Yeah, and then those advantages are also used narratively too. So while you might succeed at um, disabling the alarm, the advantages that you rolled might also give you access to the camera system so that you can see where the enemies are positioned. Or maybe you can also, um, you know, disable some automated defenses or something like that. The proficiency die also has a one chance to roll the triumph uh, symbol, 
which is essentially uh, a great thing happens, and that it's going to be in addition to any other uh, results uh, of your dice pool. So it might be that you automatically trigger a critical hit, or um, not only do you hack into the system, but you also lock uh, other people out who are also trying to get in. On the negative side, though, you've also got three different kinds of dice. You've got setback dice, which are the opposite of boost dice. So they represent environmental factors that are working against you. Low light conditions, uh, the floor is slippery, something like that. Yep, you've also got difficulty dice, which are the opposite of ability. Those are your basic, just, you know, it's hard to succeed at things, and these have the negative impacts. And then you have challenge dice, which are the inverse of proficiency, and also carry the dreaded despair, uh, basically the inverted version of triumph. So when a player is attempting to resolve a task that has a chance of failure or narrative consequences, the GM uh, helps them build a dice pool. So you look at environmental factors, are they good, are they negative? And they can be multiple ones, right? They can be uh, low light, but you could have a, a piece of equipment that you know helps you out. Uh, you could be very skilled at something, but your natural aptitude is, is not that great. And you know someone could have put... Um, a, a security system in place that is trying to stop you from uh, entering a building. You add all of those dice into a large pool, and then one thing I really like about the system is you get to pick up this large pool of dice pretty much every time you roll and then throw them all on the table at the same time. It's right. basically like a fireball every time you make a skill check. Exactly. Uh, and then you just symbol match so they cancel each other out, and you get left with the net result of both... Um, successes and failures as well as advantages and disadvantages and then you apply triumphs and despairs jointly so this can result in hundreds thousands of different combinations of results you could have three successes which is a a pretty amazing success you succeeded with flair right but you could also roll that with a despair and three disadvantages meaning you have succeeded at what you were doing very well, but there's a great cost that will uh, that has resulted from that success. Yeah, maybe you were trying to shoot the lock off a door. Hey, maybe you did that so well that uh, the mechanism is now exploded in your face. Right, or the uh, the guards that you were well, <laughs> I guess you weren't very stealthy if you were shooting the lock off. Um, but but perhaps on the other side of that unlocked door now are uh, enemies that you hadn't expected or anticipated. So this is the general gist of the narrative dice system. Once you get used to it, it moves relatively quickly, but. There are definitely people who feel like it takes much too long to resolve a task. So you you roll the dice and then you have to go through the pattern matching. That can take a little while. And it is actually one of the benefits of using either online tools or one of the dice apps is that the computer does the pattern matching for you and just gives you the results of, you know, how many net uh, successes or, or threats or failures or whatever you end up with. Yeah, I mean, the... The advice from long-term Star Wars players is usually roll the dice early on with your character, and then once you hit a certain point, switch to an app, because it'll just move things faster. So let's talk about what's on your character sheet next, because we know how the dice work, so how do we develop stats and uh, characteristics around that? When you look at the character sheet, if you're familiar with Dungeons & Dragons or most other RPGs, it's going to make a lot of sense to you. You're character has characteristics. In D&D, they'd be called ability scores. They run from one to five. There are six of them, and they measure your natural aptitudes in different areas. 
So there's brawn, which is physical strength, agility, intellect, cunning, willpower, and presence. Um, you know, these pretty much stack to your standard six scores. And each of these is rated from one to five. Um, the average is two, and most of your enemies will have two in all of their abilities, and maybe a three in something they're really good at, and a one in something they're really bad at. You can eventually raise your characteristics. Uh, it takes a long time and a lot of XP, um, up to maybe like a four, or I guess if you really dedicate yourself, you could even get to a five. But five is like Sherlock Holmes level intellect. Um, most characters are not going to get there. I think you're actually locked out of the second advance. Uh, so I don't think you even can get to five. I think you're limited to four. You could buy all the way to four to start as a starting character with all your XP. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then you could take it a talent. Yeah, you can only afterwards increase each characteristic by one. Right. Uh, then you pick your skills which um, are exactly what they sound like. They're different kinds of tasks that you have particular training in, whether that's fighting with weapons or um, punching with your fists or flying a plane. Yeah, there's a broad set of skills, and this is the first part of the system that becomes dependent on setting. So within the system, there's a a host of skills, and each setting should either uh, pare down that list of skills or add some additional skills that become available. Uh, this is sort of the first decision that a GM has to make in the system. Yeah. Um, skills are also rated 1 to 5. You can have between 1 and 5 ranks. And we'll start to see this pattern. 1 through 5 is sort of the the bounds of the system itself. I, I think it works nicely to sort of keep everything in a, a, a package that can actually resolve in a way that, that ends up making sense. So you use skills and characteristics together. So whenever you want to do something, it it uses a skill. You take the higher, the highest of your skill or characteristic tells you the number of dice you're going to roll. Those would primarily be ability dice. And then you will replace those dice by the value of the lower characteristic with proficiency dice. So if you have a three in alchemy and a two in intellect, you would roll three dice total and two of them would be proficiency. So you'd roll two proficiency and one ability. And you would roll that against whatever the difficulty of the task you were attempting was, add any boost or setback, and see what happens. Yeah, we'll get into this a bit later, but difficulty is also rated between one and five, from easy all the way to formidable. Right. And then they can, as a GM, you can also add challenge dice in there, which are upgrading the difficulty dice themselves. So it's uh, it's an elegant system in how it just kind of flows naturally. Yeah, and once you get the hang of it, it starts to make sense. It's a bit counterintuitive sometimes when you're like, okay, I need to add more dice to this pool, but wait, that's a bad thing. Right. (laughs) Um, And then once you've got your characteristics and skills, you also gain talents, which um, sort of work like feats or uh, class abilities in other systems. They're, They're basically the modifiers that give you situational benefits or unlock things that you can do. Um, either by adding or removing dice or by using um, the results of your dice to do something special. Yeah, in I think Savage Worlds, they're called merits. Um, They're pretty much exclusively positive uh, because you're going to spend XP on them. And then the next thing that you'll derive are story points, which will be familiar to Star Wars players as uh, your light and dark side points. 
Yeah, in this case, um, rather than rolling the force die like you do in Edge of the Empire, it just every PC starts with one story point in uh, the pool for the team. And the GM also starts with one story point. And you can use them to activate uh, different kinds of abilities that might be on your character sheet. You can also use them to sort of uh, snag narrative control. Uh, it might be that... Uh, you trigger a flashback with it and say, like a quick flashback saying, oh, remember we we did bring the grenades. Of course we brought the grenades. Right. Or, you know, you can turn in all five of the story points when you have them on your side and just win the game. It's over. Congratulations. We go home. Wait, does it work like that? No, it doesn't. (laughs) Oh. Um, One thing I love about the story points is when either, for lack of a better term, side, whether the players or the GM spends a story point, it then goes to the other side. So when the players spend a story point, the GM gets that story point to use for whatever they can use story points for. Yeah, so there's a natural flow back and forth across the table, uh, just as the narrative arc would want sort of, you know, some highs and some lows. And then on your sheet, you've also got some derived stats based on the choices that you've made previously. That's a wound threshold, strain threshold. Yes, this is a game that has two HP tracks. Uh, you got things like your defense value, your soak value. Right, and these are used primarily for combat, though uh, strain kind of gets activated in a couple different ways. All right, so let's dig into the nitty-gritty of character creation. The first thing the game asks you to select is your background. Um, This is all story-based. It's, in fact, totally optional. It's essentially deciding, you know, who you are, where you came from, what you're doing, and why you're adventuring. The first mechanical thing you're going to pick is your archetype or your species. These are basically two words for the same thing. Uh, if you're playing in a setting where you've only got humans, then it's your archetype. You can be a laborer, an aristocrat, or an intellectual. If you're playing in a setting where you have more than just humans available, then it'll actually be a different species. Uh, whether that's a dwarf or an elf or an orc um, in a fantasy setting or a Wookiee in uh, Star Wars. And from this, you will get a handful of abilities filled in on your sheet. So they will assign your characteristics, um, each of the six, and you'll have four twos, a one, and a three. Right, so instead of having twos across the board as a generic human would, one of those will be a one and one will be a three. And then you'll get a pool of um, experience points to spend. Each uh, archetype or species starts with a slightly different amount, and then you'll get like one or two special abilities, either something you can use a story point for that uh, no other PC will be able to, or um, some kind of special ability, like, you know, elves get dark vision. Yep. Uh, You'll also get your starting wounds and your uh, starting strain from this choice, as well as one starting skill. Hmm. I will say one thing I don't really like about this is there are only four archetypes uh, presented, four kinds of humans, which if you sort of do the math, it means that you can start as an aristocrat and have a, a three in presence and a one in brawn, but there's no character archetype that has a three in presence and a one in willpower, for example. Right. You know? Uh, which which is true, but also um, kind of within the theme of the book, right? You could easily swap out um, specific characteristics if they f- better fit your background. Yeah. And, you know, we'll get into that. I think a full two-thirds of this book is doing stuff yourself right after that you pick your career which many other games would call your class there are two different kinds of careers there's role based which is you know what do you do in the party 
and setting based. So there are some careers that are available like wizard um, that will be available in a fantasy setting but won't be available in a modern setting. Right. And the career basically just gives you a set of um, career skills which you can level up cheaper than other skills. Yeah, it's a list of career skills, and then every career lets you pick four of those to uh, start with, trained at one rank for free. Uh, this is the first thing in this book I saw where I was like, oh, you could just totally eliminate this. You know, just take this right out, because all you're doing is eliminating class skills. Yeah, I mean, all you would have to really do here is tag a set of skills for your character by choice, and then name what is that career, you know? Like, you could go, you could totally go backwards. After that, you take that pool of XP that uh, you've been given based on your archetype or species, and you can spend it either to increase your characteristics, which is probably what you'll be doing at the beginning of the game, or buying talents or um, additional ranks and skills. Yeah, it's actually interesting. There's some character building advice here as well, and largely says the same thing, right? Go ahead and increase your characteristics now if you intend to, because it's more difficult to do it later. Yeah, I do like that that is kind of a theme of the tone of the book. It's very conversational. Um, The authors refer to themselves as in the plural. You know, here's what we decided we were going to do. And there's a lot of information about why they made specific choices in designing the game. So that a, a reader who is also trying to design their own things can benefit from that knowledge. And, and I like because they tried to conserve a lot of mechanics from exist, the existing narrative dice systems, right? Um, rather than fixing those trap options, they just recognized them and said, hey, don't fall into this trap. Um, you know, if it were a, a greenfield system, we might criticize them for that. But I think given the goals of the book, um, that's the best way to handle those things rather than pretend they don't exist and let players realize it on their own. Yeah, I think there's a part later in the book that just says, uh, the reason you can only increase characteristics at the beginning is because it's just better than picking anything else. So rather than encouraging you to you know, not do that later or making other things too good, we just said you can only do it now. Right. Then you'll pick motivations, which are the desires, the flaws, the goals that you're character has Um, you know you know in any rpg you're going to pick these kinds of things but these do end up having some mechanical value later in social encounters yeah and in addition to ideals and flaws they also have fears and strengths which uh again sort of give you as a gm something that you can interact with and as a player tell the gm here are you know here's the way to play to my character and here's the way to um, threaten my character. Yeah, and for each of these motivations, there's a nice little table that you can roll on uh, to you know, figure out what it might be if you don't want to come up with it on your own. It is a little strange that it's a D100 roll, but everything is just you know, 0 through 10, 11 through 20. It's just a, it's a D10 roll. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it, it does mention at the beginning of the book that they will also ask for a D100 uh, and does explain how to make a D100 out of two D10s. Um, so there's that. Um, I also like they call out specifically that motivations do change uh, over the course of play and, and to be open to that um, as a GM and as a player. Um, I think that's a good call out because it's something that um, is often occurs but is kind of lacking in, in a lot of games. Yeah, actually, they they call out if a desire has been achieved, it needs to be immediately 
replaced with something else as quickly as possible. Right. And then the next thing you do is choose your gear and start defining your character's personality, as well as their appearance and, and the other kind of, you know, descriptive elements of your character. And depending on the setting, there's uh, different gear available. Um, we'll, we'll sort of get into that a little bit later. And every character starts with 500 generic currency in order to spend to equip themselves. Yeah, that was an interesting choice. They just they just had to call it 500 stuff. <laughs> yeah. um, like we, we had to set a starting point for our scale, and you can scale or change the the denominations however you want to you know multiply everything by five or double everything or whatever but just keep them roughly in this scale of generic currency (laughs) one through five hundred currency right (laughs) uh the next section of the book is uh, a detailed dive into skills um this starts with a list of skills and the settings that it applies to which is sort of a one of the initial setup things necessary for a GM and the group to define. Right. So, you know, there's what, maybe 30 skills listed here. Um, Most of them are available in all settings, you know, things like brawl, charm, leadership. Uh, And then some of them are restricted to particular settings like arcana. You can use in any setting that uses magic. Piloting, you can use in Weird War or Modern Day or Science Fiction or Space Opera, but you're not going to use it in Fantasy because there's probably not a flying ship for you to use. Except in Eberron. Right. And then, you know, Athletics is available anywhere. It breaks it down into a few different categories. We've got Social Skills, General Skills, Knowledge Skills, Combat Skills, and Magic Skills. And then for each of these skills listed, there's a brief description as well as a bulleted kind of list of when to use this, when not to use this. That's actually my favorite part about the skill lists is, you know, in most RPGs you get, you know, one paragraph on here's what you use this skill for. Uh, But then there's always arguing in gameplay about, well, no, this should apply here and, and why wouldn't it? I don't understand. And I do like that some of the lists of when not to use this skill are actually longer than the list of when to use this skill. Because mm-hmm. they're like, okay, yeah, yeah, we can explain when you should be using this, but you're probably confused. Here's when you don't want to use it. Don't allow the use of this skill in this situation because that's a different skill. Yeah, and it's it's especially in the combat section because there's, there's like eight combat skills that cover um, different classes of weapon or different types of fighting. So... Um, it just makes very clear, hey, if you're using your fist, it's sprawl. If you're using a dagger, it's light weapons. If you're using a halberd, it's heavy weapons. Unless you don't have that weapon differentiation, in which case you just use melee. Exactly. Then there's a list of opposed skills. So which skill does an NPC use when you're using one of your skills on them? If you're trying to charm someone, what skill do they use to prevent you from charming them? And these are these are straight up codified. There's just a one to one list. Yeah, and those opposed checks are basically uh, using characteristic and skill proficiency in order to build the difficulty side. So if you've got you know a three and two in your skill and ability, then you would have one purple and two red. Yeah, this is fundamentally different from the way that most RPGs handle opposed checks. You know, in most 
systems, I am trying to notice someone who's sneaking up behind me. So I make a perception check, and then they make a stealth check, and we compare those two, and whoever's higher is the one who wins. In this instance, I'm going to make a vigilance check opposed by their stealth. So I build my dice pool based on how good I am at vigilance, and then I add to my dice pool negative dice based on how they are, how good they are at stealth, and then I roll. They don't roll anything. Some of these skill descriptions list difficulties for different kinds of tasks, a bit like in other games where you'll have the difficulty class uh, or the target number listed. Medicine, for example. If you want to heal someone who's wounded uh, more than half of their threshold, that is two purple dice. More than that, that's three purple dice. Yep, and then the combat and magic skills sort of work the same way. There's a set difficulty um, based on the enemy so you'll just the difficulty to attack that enemy based on their either melee or range defense and then um, you just need to overcome that right so you heard that right combat and magic systems in genesis are skill based they're not separate systems you have a skill that you can use to attack someone with ranged or melee you build the dice pool just the same as you do for any other check just like um, trying to notice something Uh, How good am I using this weapon? Uh, How good are they at avoiding being hit or how far away they are or whatever it is that determines how hard it is to hit them? Add them together into the dice pool and roll. And we will kind of delve into the magic system a little bit later. That's at the end of the book because it's some uh, optional rules, but we will uh, cover that in a bit. The next section of the book, chapter four, is talents. Talents also are ranked from 1 to 5. You have tier 1 through tier 5, and you buy talents with XP. Um, Each tier costs progressively more. Now, for those of you who played Edge of the Empire or the Star Wars game, um, you'll remember that you you got talents with these complicated like visual flowcharts where you needed to buy an ability in order to sort of follow the line to a connecting ability in order to work your way all the way down the tree. Um, And those were fun, but they were very complicated to come up with. And every time the designers needed to put out a new kind of uh, class or career, they basically had to design an entirely new flowchart. Genesis completely simplifies this into a pyramid system. Yeah, so the tiers not only impact the power of the ability and its cost but they are also required in order to continue buying higher tiers so in order to buy um, a talent from a tier you must have at least one more talent in the preceding tier so in order to buy a level your first level two talent you would need two level one talents in order to buy your first level three talent you would need two level two and three level one talents yeah I, I like how the uh, one of the sheets uh, at the end that they provide basically just builds it out in a pyramid it's okay you're going to need five level one talents in order to even get a level five talent because you know you need five then four then three then two and finally you're one right um and, and what that means is there is uh, you're locked out of the higher tier abilities until you've spent a lot of xp um you'll end up having a lot of tier one abilities in order just to get that first tier five now you know we haven't played that much of this so i don't know if all of the like tier one and tier two talents are going to end up being really useful but i at first glance i really like this way of gatekeeping the higher level abilities if you compare it to something like fantasy flights uh, second edition dark heresy there were different tiers of talents that you could purchase but the only thing that 
kept you from getting them was the cost. So if you saved up, you could just straight up buy a tier three talent right off the bat and, you know, have a very powerful ability and just ignore all the lower level ones. Right. Yeah. And, and there were prerequisites as well that prevented some of that. Um, but it just made for much more convoluted and, and complicated talent trees. Yeah, and you had to sort of track backwards how you had to get there because you had like a, you know, a characteristic score that you had to meet as well. So you had to buy that up and then, you know, you'd meet three prerequisites and be like, oh, but I missed another one. Yeah, this seems much more streamlined and very applicable across any kind of setting or or game that you want to play it in, which is kind of the point of this system. And then each talent also specifies whether it should or should not be used in particular settings. Most of them say, you know, use this with any setting. Some are only use this in a weird war. Yeah, and, and what that means is that uh, this is another thing that you'll agree on with the players um, as you're setting up your game of what talents are in, what talents are out, um, you know, what custom talents are you going to add to the to the list or, or what are you going to rule out? Right, or as a shortcut, essentially just say, okay, we're playing in a weird war setting, and I'll make adjustments as we go. Right. After that, there's the gear section. And gear has a rarity that tells you how difficult it is to find and how difficult it is to sell. Um, That means that we're dealing with a system where it is helpful to have a character in the party who's good at finding and getting rid of items. Because it's a skill check. Yeah, and it's a it's a separate scale, a zero to ten scale for rarity that then has modifiers based on circumstance that either make it uh, you know higher or lower, um, and those then translate into a one to five difficulty rating um, between you know how many dice are you adding to your pool. The encumbrance system is pretty self-explanatory. I will say one thing I really liked about Edge of the Empire and this as well in terms of encumbrance is it's based on bulk and weight combined so when you wear armor you actually reduce the encumbrance of it because armor is of course made to be worn (laughs) right but when you carry armor it is quite encumbering (laughs) yes there's a section on item qualities that's you know essentially um is it an accurate weapon does it have auto fire is it defensive how much damage does it do and these are essentially keywords Uh, so when you have a listing of items or gear or weapons or armor you at least know what exactly it does right there's also a very small subsystem for item maintenance uh, basically if you roll despair you may degrade the quality of your gear um, this gives you rules for fixing that yeah but there's a sidebar that says but mostly don't worry about it <laughs> exactly <laughs> if you really need this here it is um, which which is kind of how i feel about uh the acquisition system as well to be honest yeah, I, I don't particularly love acquisition systems to begin with. I will say, I think there's a there's a sidebar later in the book that says, okay, you know, one of the things that we give you the option of doing is if your uh, player rolls a despair when they're attacking, maybe they run out of ammo. But that doesn't always make the most sense in the narrative. But maybe they don't run out. Maybe they realize they've got one arrow left or one shot in the chamber left. And now the despair has turned into something cool that still raises the stakes. Right. And then we have a brief section of example weapons. Um, There's basically just a (laughs) couple stat blocks. (laughs) (laughs) I saw this for the first time and I was like, wait, is this a misprint? Did they screw this up? What's going on? 
There's well, literally knife and revolver. And this is not a misprint, but the majority of the weapons that are defined actually show up later in the book in the setting section. A few of them. Yeah, it's still a limited list of weapons and armor but uh, and gear in general, but it is there. Uh, it's just confined to each setting. Yeah, this is really sort of the first time it hit me reading this book where it, w- where it was very obvious that this is a system for designing a game that you want to play. This is now laid out to say, okay, here is the thinking behind gear. Here is what gear can do or what it's able to do. But coming up with specific kinds of gear that you use in your game, um, that's up to you. Yep. Then the next chapter, chapter six, is combat encounters. And this delves into all of the details of combat. Uh, We won't drain this section, um, it's a it's a very functional system you know it's it's heavily borrowed from star wars which um had a great if not uh deceptively deadly system of combat yeah and it's it's pretty standard you know uh rounds last a minute uh you have different kinds of actions that are increasingly take an increasing amount of time to pull off incidentals which are basically free actions maneuvers which is moving and actions which is attacking or actually using an item yep you can uh you can do certain additional things by um taking strain for your character there's as we mentioned before there's two damage tracks wounds and strain um either one of those can knock out your character or straight out kill them but it is pretty easy to recover strain. One of the resource mechanics in the game is voluntarily spending strain in order to accomplish tasks. Yeah. Um, rather than using uh, precise like grid combat positioning, uh, the system uses just range bands. So you just establish, are you engaged with an enemy? Are you short range, medium, long range, extreme range, etc.? Um, you know, it, it works pretty well, though you do have to wrap your head around a, a different kind of tactical situation. It, it's not going to be, um, you know, am I in cover? Does he have line of sight? That sort of thing. It's it's much more narratively focused, sort of the way that uh, a movie would treat these tactics. Yeah, Edge of the Empire used range bands as well. Um, I will say one of the reasons people didn't like 4th edition Dungeons & Dragons is that it was very difficult to do theater of the mind. You know, you kind of had to have a grid because, you know, a five-foot step counted for a lot. Like, it really mattered if you were in this five-foot square or a different five-foot square. Um, Whereas, you know, we've talked before about playing just straight-up theater of the mind can make it tough for uh, tactically-minded players because they're like, well, wait a minute, but... I specifically got in a great position in order to make this work and like I don't have any information here. How do I know where everyone is standing? Is this fireball going to catch five people or eight people? Whereas range bands, I have found that as someone who's tactically minded, um, it, it's uh, it's been a nice compromise. I know if I'm standing next to him because I'm engaged. I know I'm not standing next to them because I'm at short range, but I know that I can get to them within one movement action. Right. and And the way that... Uh, the game treats area effects is simply like you target that enemy and anything engaged with it is also in its area or anything within short range of it is also in the area, you know? So it's a, it's a relatively simple way of doing it. And then there is a critical hit chart. Well, actually before we talk about critical hits, why don't we talk a little bit about how damage works in the system? Cause once you hit the item or the attack has a base damage, you can add additional damage based on the number of successes. Um, there's some properties that 
add additional effects to that damage um, dependent on um, advantages. And then from that damage, you then deduct the target soak value. So it's possible to succeed, but not do enough damage to actually penetrate their armor and have no ill effects. They may not even be wearing armor. You also get soaked just from being tough. Right. Yeah, exactly. So actually everybody has, almost everybody has some value of soak. Correct. And then from there, uh, once you start taking wounds, uh, you risk critical damage. And this is actually the only way to die. You can have your wounds reduced to zero, but you don't actually die unless you have rolled poorly enough on the critical hit chart. Uh, the lower level versions are things like, you know, you take a setback die um, from for actions now, or you can't take uh, maneuvers, or, or even, you know, you lose a limb. But uh, eventually it's, oh yeah, you are very dead. Yeah, and every time you roll on the chart, it keeps adding additional modifiers to it. Um, there's also additional modifiers that can come from the setting or from different properties of a weapon to to escalate. Um, and the, the higher you roll, obviously, the poorer the results. So eventually, yeah, you can die. Uh, the descriptions are not as comically brutal as the ones in Dark Heresy 2nd Edition, but they're certainly functional. Right. Uh, you can definitely embellish them if you need your grim dark. Then there's an entire chapter on social encounters, which is a bit like... Um, verbal combat in that you can actually inflict strain on people just by using the right insult it I think shares a bit of a provenance with skill challenges from 4th edition which we've talked about before um, had their own problems but were certainly a promising direction for uh, social interactions yeah it it adds um, some more weight to those encounters that you know, in other systems might just be um, reduced to a simple opposed check. Um, and, and I think this has clearly been added on as um, as an enabler for more dramatic games or uh, kind of romance or even like some horror games might, might really benefit from this. Whereas if you're playing your typical dungeon crawl, um, you know, stomping goblins and orcs, then you you might never engage with these social encounter rules. You might just simply use skill checks for the the social encounter stuff, uh, as you might in like more of a D and D. Yeah, there's nothing stopping you from doing the traditional D and D version of hey, we're talking, and while we're talking, I use the skill, and you know, maybe the face talks a lot more than other people. Right. Um, but I do love this as uh, you know, setting up kind of a. Um, a courtroom scene or you know we had trials in the morning glory campaign or um something like uh like a discussion at court right like uh, you you need to convince the legislature to uh approve the articles of war uh and if you don't beat back the resistance with your witty repartee then uh the head of the house of lords will deny the request yeah i i love how so in the combat section of the book there is a chart on how to spend advantages and you know threat and and things like that uh, when you get that result when you're in combat but there's also a chart exactly like that in the social encounters where if you roll a skill check and you end up with extra advantage um, or extra successes you can uh, learn the strength or flaw of the person that you're targeting with this skill or if you end up uh, with you know, threats, you might suffer some strain um, just be because you sort of like lost a bit of your confidence. Um, or you might accidentally reveal one of your own desires. 
Yeah, and naturally there are critical remarks that deal <laughs> five strain, which will <laughs> probably finish off a fight. <laughs> <laughs> then there's the last part of this is a is an explanation of how to leverage motivations um, within a social encounter. I think it's a it's a good way of tying back to those initial mechanics that are on your character sheet. Yeah, and it explains how to incorporate that into building the dice pools. You know, um, giving characters an extra boost die or setback die depending on how the motivations are playing out or how they're being used or leveraged in the conversation. Yep. Then the final chapter of the rules section is aimed at the GM. Um, And this is sort of advice for the GM as well as a, a primer on what being a GM means. Um, It's an interesting section, as we mentioned at the top, where it kind of talks to the GM as though you're a total beginner, but the rest of this book would not really be suitable for an absolute beginner to RPGs, so it it lands a little awkwardly. Yeah, uh, Genesis is trying to be everything to everyone, and and so, you know, this is the Player's Handbook, the Monster Manual, and the, the Dungeon Master's Guide all rolled into one book, so there needs to be a section in here on how to be a GM and how to run a game, but it's just fairly advanced stuff. Yeah, and, and the reality is just that it's not really a PHP or a DMG or a monster manual. It's it's really enabling you to build that stuff as you need it for your game, um, which is sort of a step beyond what a first-time GM would really be expecting. Yeah, I don't think either of us is recommending that a first-time GM pick this up and try to build a setting from scratch right that said the advice that they give for prepping uh encounters as well as the advice that they give for gm specific to the genesis system is really fantastic yeah i agree um i really liked the section on in, in how to interpret the narrative dice um i think that's very helpful for experienced gms who may not who may be new to this system yeah um, that's great. Uh, I also like um, there's specific advice on using strain and using motivations, which are two of the, um, I think, stronger elements of the system that are probably often overlooked because they don't really grab your attention um, necessarily from like an XP or a mechanical standpoint. And one small thing that I, th- I really loved was you know that thing where you are adjudicating um, a hit or a miss, or really a miss in combat, and the question is, okay, did my arrow completely miss the orc, or was it a glancing blow that like bounced off their shield or their armor, or you know, whatever, did they step out of the way? And the book says, well, take a look at the dice, right? Everything cancels each other out, you've moved all these dice to the side, and now you have this pool of the results. If like the the miss happened because of a red challenge die it's because of something the enemy did if the miss happened because of a setback die then it's because of some environmental factor mm-hmm. it's sort of nice to be able to just look at it and go oh well i can look at the die and by the color and the shape of it i can immediately tell what is it that caused this um result yeah i i love that as as advice in this section, right? As a here, here's another way for you to interpret the dice. Uh, I would hate it if that were the standard. Of like, oh yeah, oh oh god, right? I agree. Yeah, because because it is totally arbitrary which dice cancel each other. Often, you know, if you've got uh, two and one, for example, well, which which of the two do you cancel? 
Um, but I love it's like if you're stuck here, look at the dice. They're giving you prompts, right? Use them for what they are, and and that will help you get unstuck. Um, I actually I really like um, they spent a section they they spent a page and a half talking about the social contract and behavior at the table, um, which I think is uh, something that took like four D and D books before it got mentioned. Um, right, and and I think is is probably worthy of being at the very beginning. Uh, I'm glad it's at the beginning of the GM section because a lot of times it does fall on the GM to sort of set those standards. So uh, that was something that I was happy to see in here. And then what basically passes for, well, like Shane said, not a monster manual, but what sort of points toward being able to create a monster manual is a small section on uh, building adversaries, essentially the, the monsters, the enemies that your characters face. So they fall into three different types. You've got minions who are, you know, easy to handle one-on-one but are dangerous in groups. You've got rivals who are essentially the equivalent of a PC. And then you've got nemeses, someone like a BBEG, someone who uh, you can't handle on your own. Yeah, and it gives you the rules for each of these. So minions work a little bit differently. So they have simplified um, stat blocks. Uh, there's some restrictions on how rivals can interact. And the nemeses are, are basically fully-fledged. PCs uh, and maybe even more powerful than that. Um, and then there's just a series of example stat blocks. There's also some additional examples uh, within the settings sections. There's a decent starting point here for you know how to build these and how to use them. Yeah, it's sort of odd judging this section because I'm I'm looking at these stat blocks and going, hey, all right, you know, it's pretty easy to read. Um, I really like that when an enemy has a talent that makes it more difficult to attack them or some special ability. It's actually, the entire thing's written out. It says talent name and then lists the text of the talent rather than what happens in like 3.5 D&D or Dark Heresy where it's just seven different talents or feats listed and or, you know, 19 different spells and it doesn't tell you anything about what those things do. Yeah, it doesn't do that for weapons though, um, which is fine. Um you know, but it's if not they easily have, laid out. Yes, right. Yeah. So if they have special properties on their weapons, you'll you'll probably have to flip through that. Though I'm guessing that's a table that you're going to want to print out as a table aid anyway. However, having a nice stat block in this section doesn't ultimately matter because you don't really have that many enemies listed here. You're supposed to build them on your own. So having a clean looking stat block doesn't help you unless you reproduce that when you create these on your own, like jotting down in pencil. So, you know, good luck with that, I guess. Yeah, that's true. But um, at least it sets a good standard for the beginning. Um, Then the last, the very last section of adversaries is how to, an explanation of how to judge the power of your adversaries to make sure you're giving them an appropriate challenge. Um, there's no, you know, uh, CR system. There's no XP budgeting. Um, but there are sort of the key things that you should look at when you're gauging, can my party handle this or is it too strong? Um, and I, I think for a soft and toolbox kind of book like this, I think that's a good section to have. Um, it also helps GMs understand, like, how should I think about these stat blocks? What are the key parts I should be looking at as I'm designing? it really becomes apparent that this book is for people who are willing to put in the time to sort of sit here and work out what they're setting or what their adversaries are going to look like because there aren't really formula for figuring things out. It it literally is, hey, if you're using minions, between two and four of them sounds good, but never use more than five. 
<laughs> right. Um, and, and likewise, it's like, you know, take their skill values and compare them to the skill values that your characters have, because ultimately those are the two things that are going to go into a pool, right? So that'll tell you what are the odds of succeeding if you if you compare those two elements. Right. It's, it's guidelines on eyeballing. Right. Is all throughout this book. Um, but because the dice are so... Uh, <laughs> swingy and open to interpretation I think that makes a lot of sense rather than trying to codify everything in, in a numerical system so I, I, I appreciate that yeah I actually really like that they sort of lay out that the math is a bit loosey goosey but give you parameters they say well here's how we felt about it and we think you should probably go with this Yep. alright so that's the first section of the book now on to Section number two, settings. So this is really the main appeal for Genesis. It's a generic system. You're supposed to be able to play many different types of games. You can play a fantasy game. You can play Star Wars space opera. You can play science fiction. And in this section, you've got a few different settings that are are laid out to in the same way as adversaries or weapons or armor it's basically shorthand for here's what a setting sort of looks like and here's a direction you can go if you're trying to build a fantasy setting for this game Um, but you're going to need to do a lot more work on your end if you want to have something fully fleshed out yeah and and to that end it does start with a worksheet that uh, helps you flesh out what your setting and world are going to be Um, it it talks about tropes and themes um, you know, identifying which ones are in the setting, which ones aren't in the setting, which ones are you subverting in the setting. Um, it talks about identifying um, which factions and organizations are present, um, as well as sort of some of the major personalities that the characters are likely to run into. Um, it also has the mechanical items, so, you know, species, um, specific skills that apply for the characters, as well as. Um, a section of technology level um, that will help you in determining what gear makes sense in the setting. Um, it's it's somewhat basic, but it's enough to get started. And I think that's where it's helpful. Each setting that is delineated in this section goes through the main tropes of the setting to explain, you know, what is the setting to someone who doesn't necessarily understand what a weird war is. It gives uh, an example setting, a short example setting, some starting character options, Uh, gear and adversaries and I actually I liked this section I'm just not sure that it was worth spending as many pages on it as they did like for example there's one two three three whole pages on fantasy setting tropes like what what is involved in a normal fantasy setting and like all this information is good stuff it makes sense it's true it's just who is picking up this book who doesn't already know this stuff yeah that's yeah (laughs) the tropes and descriptions i think are are probably the less useful part of this um but the species gear and adversary sections give you more data points and and help to flesh out to build a playable system um sort of beyond what was just in the core rule section right so for example in the fantasy section you get elf dwarf and orc and 
you know, they get into this later in, you know, how to build a, a species, but it becomes pretty apparent that you can swap a lot of things out. The dwarf has three willpower and one agility, and the elf has three agility and one willpower. You know, it's but they both get 90 XP to start with rather than the 100 you would get with a generic human. Or an orc, for that matter. Because <laughs> <laughs> orcs are better. They're just right. better. <laughs> Um, then the, you know, the weapon section also gives you another list of weapons. It, 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 as you look at it, you can start to see sort of where, um, price and special abilities and base damage and crit range and that sort of stuff all kind of start to interact. So it gives you data points, um, leading into, uh, or as reference for the later section on creating your own. Yeah, but still you're not getting a lot here. There are what, 11 weapons. Uh, listed in fantasy which i think is more than most of the other settings right and then the adversary section uh does really give you some more stat blocks um because it it does start to group together and um like so many monster manuals right if you take the set of stats you can reflavor them any way you want uh lots of gms never have their their players face anything but stormtroopers uh when they're facing minions in star wars because hey that's a really good and useful versatile stat block (laughs) um so you know these stat blocks are kind of in the same vein there's minions rivals and nemeses so besides fantasy you get steampunk weird war which is like world war ii with um the occult so i guess captain america modern day science fiction which is more hard sci and then space opera which is star wars and that's it for section two of the book so the next section is the gm's toolkit and this is just a collection of things to help you do this yourself uh help you uh, if not write your own book at least write your own setting for your game from what i can tell this has already been an extremely popular part of this book i am seeing all the time on reddit and different internet forums people tossing out their own personalized settings for their favorite game systems or, or even completely homebrewed ones yeah you know lots of conversions um the Fantasy Flight forums have a very good Dark Heresy conversion, so I'm excited to dig into that as I uh, begin exploring Rogue Trader <laughs> in uh, in this setting, or in this rule system. Yeah, I'm going to dig around for a Firefly conversion. It walks you through how to build all the different components of a setting. Uh, first up is how to create a skill. And I like that it's essentially telling you, okay, here's how you're going to make decisions about the kind of information that we have presented to you earlier in the book. So, for example, when you're making a skill, the first thing you're doing is deciding which characteristic is it linked to, because every skill is linked to one specific characteristic. You know, and the advice is really good stuff. It's um, take a look at what makes the most sense, but then also take a look at how many other skills are linked to that particular characteristic. And if there's too many, then don't do that one. Right. And if there's something else that already does this, don't make this skill. Yep. Um, avoid redundancy and then also avoid skill bloat, right? Don't, don't turn one existing skill into three new skills if you don't absolutely need to. Then it goes in the same way into creating a species or archetype. And then it gets into the nitty gritty of things we've already talked about, which is how to move around different amounts of XP in order to increase or decrease wound or strain threshold or different characteristics or to give a species uh, a cool new ability uh, derived from their physiology. 
And once again, they give you some more sample unique abilities. So in addition to all the ones listed in the setting sections, you've also got these additional ones. Um, they they kind of give you an idea of the power level of those as well by telling you, you know, decrease starting XP by 15, increase by 10, you know. In this section, it might seem like the authors are really getting into the weeds and into the nitty gritty of like, you know, forcing you to spend a lot of time looking at and sort of eyeballing and, and using your gut to judge the balance of um, a component of your game. But I think when you're when you're building a new species, for example, um, you're only really doing that a few times before you start playing in a new setting. You know, it, this is work you only really need to do one time. Yeah. And so I, I think it's worth it to go into this much detail. Yeah, it's, it's pretty foundational stuff to the system and the play experience, so you want to get it right. Um, and, and in a lot of ways, this is what you're buying in this book, is this section explaining how they designed the previous two sections. Yeah, honestly, this section three, the GM's toolkit, um, I could see a certain kind of RPG designer or a certain kind of you know GM who doesn't really want to play Genesis, but wants this book for this specific advice on how to design certain parts of an RPG. Mm-hmm. The next section, I think, even exceeds that uh, because it, it starts to talk about talents. And because talents are sort of the source of mechanical complexity uh, in the system, it spends a lot of time kind of walking through what are the questions that you need to ask yourself as you're designing talents, right? Um, is it starting from mechanical or narrative effects, right? And then flowing on down through, um, you know, how do you activate a talent? Um, what tier does it fit into, right? Like what's the level of effect that it should have based on that? Um, you know, how does it interact with dice? And then advice as well about like what types of decisions make for more complicated table play experiences versus which ones sort of streamline and simplify play. Yeah, I really love these these questionnaires. Um, each of these sections has them, but the talent one is particularly uh, lengthy. Um, and then it digs into, you know, there's a, a section on what does a tier one talent look like? What does a tier two talent look like? Yeah, and, and listeners of our show uh, have heard us talk about trying to infer this based on the various different published D&D books um, and you know, assuming these are balanced, here are two things that look like they're roughly equivalent, and here's something that looks like it's stronger. And um, you know, we've kind of got a mental guideline for that as we homebrew D and D. This goes through the trouble of actually just straight up explaining it to you. You know, it's like, hey, if you're removing a black die, a, a setback die from a pool, that's a tier one talent. That's what it is. Yeah, if you're getting a permanent pet that can help you do things and improve your action economy, that's tier three. It goes into similar detail uh, in the next section, which helps you create items, whether that is gear, weapons, or armor. Yeah, it, it goes into the detailed calculations on cost too. So there is just a formula for generating cost, which I which I really like. Um, you know, if you're going to use currency as a limiter in your game, you want that to make sense. And you know, it lists how much base damage should weapons be doing and uh, yeah i love again this section it says you don't want weapons to be doing more than you know kind of a maximum of 15 damage because that will just kill most characters 
Right, exactly. But you don't want to be doing about less than four damage because that's pretty much not going to hurt anybody. Right. I, and it even, you know, like gets into the details of, of how these different properties on items influence the combat system, right? Like a, going back to armor, I like how it, it pretty much explains the logic behind a defense rating uh, for armor mm-hmm. and, and why, you know, like soak and defense, how they sort of play into each other, right? That um, and where that sort of crosses in terms of um of value right like uh plus three defense is roughly equivalent to plus four soak um either you don't get hit in the first place or it's you have to be hit very very hard in order to overcome the soak again people who have a penchant for game design in the first place are going to love a lot of this conversational stuff you know it's the kind of thing where you're like exactly how much is advantage worth is it worth a plus five on a d20 roll is it a 4.5 or is it a plus three depending on what the target number is um this is this is really interesting stuff and i like that they are kind of laying it bare and saying here was the logic you know here here's what we decided to do and, and here are the parameters on which uh, you are going to be able to build a, a mostly balanced uh, system for whatever game you end up playing. Right. It also prevents things like D&D where the trident is just actively worse than the spear. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Or where you have to infer themes around like fire damage versus uh, cold damage and how those resistances are relatively distributed within the monster manual. Right, those you know, you thank those people who are putting spreadsheets together and saying, "Uh, um, thirty percent of the monster manual is immune to poison, so that's crap." Right, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> and there is similar detail and care given to the next section, which teaches you how to create an adversary. Again, this is your whole monster manual. This is how you're making enemies. Yeah, and, and if you were to take this section, like like so much of the others, like take this section and then put it side by side with a adversary profile, you could walk through the decisions that they made and understand how to build it, right? It's it's just a great approach to building a generic system and making it truly open source for the GM. So the next section then is alternate rules. And this is where we start to add kind of setting or gameplay specific rules that are going to really make one table playing Genesis feel different from a different table playing Genesis. Mm -hmm. And some of these are small, like for example, the nemesis extra activation rules, essentially that just gives uh, nemesis adversaries, nemesis level adversaries an extra action to take during the round. So they just don't, you know, drown in action economy. Right. Yeah, exactly. It, It lets them fight as a lone adversary um which the part of that section then says what are the effects of using this rule the good and the bad you know yeah i I love that it's not just here's the thing you could do it's here is what we think the repercussions will be in your game right um it does the same thing for uncoupling skills and abilities right so if you allow a a player to decide that they're using you know coercion uh with a different approach from the typical one could you use coercion using brawn it's going to have an impact on your game and the designers have kind of given you a warning like you can use this rule but here's what might happen as a result and if you're okay with that go for it and then at the end they they say actually here's what we might suggest 
would be better is if you want to uncouple in the moment, spend a story point. Right. Then it gets into some more like subsystem kind of alternate rules. So they set up a system for item attachments. Um, this basically gives you a way to add properties to your weapons and choose them as like a, an additional element of gear. That's something that's um, a lot of like military fiction and um, hard sci-fi. That's sort of a hallmark there. So um, I, I like that mm-hmm. system, especially uh, as I love Warhammer 40k. That's critical to making Dark Heresy work uh, or Rogue Trader because gear is important. Yeah, I really like it in um, you know scavenging type games. Yeah. Firefly, obviously, but you know even Star Wars, everyone wants to buy their like YT twenty four hundred and then upgrade it because that's the only way to get a Millennium Falcon. You can't buy it stock. Right, and and there aren't specific rules for vehicle upgrades, but you look at the system and you go, oh yeah, no, that makes total sense. This would absolutely work the same way for a ship, right? Mm-hmm. I have a number of places where I can add customizations, and I pay for those customizations to add certain properties. And here's a big list of potential customizations. Then, however, we get into the magic rules. Magic is an optional subsystem that can be attached to uh, pretty much any setting. Um, it, it doesn't come stock with the fantasy setting. You can add it if you want. Okay, so how does magic work then? We, we already know there's magic skills, so we know we'll be making a skill check in order to cast spells, right? But how do we determine what that skill check is and what the effect of the magic does? I think the sort of easiest way that I would explain it is... In D&D, you have a set list of spells. You pick a spell and the thing happens. You know, and it happens the same way every single time. Um, but magic in Genesis is much more like Harry Potter, where everyone has generic, quote-unquote, magical ability. And you decide, right before you cast a spell, what is it that you want to do. And the more complicated or the more powerful or the more dangerous, potentially, a spell is, the harder it is to pull off. So when you're using your magic skill in Genesis, you essentially decide a baseline what kind of magic effect are you doing? Is it, are you making an attack? Are you creating a barrier? Um, are you you know conjuring something out of thin air? And then there's a chart of different uh, effects that you can apply. So you can add lightning to that attack, for example. Um, and then each effect that you add to the magic spell that you're trying to cast increases the difficulty by a set amount. Maybe one purple die, maybe two purple dice. And you can pick as many effects as you want um, to determine how much more difficult than standard your effect is going to be. Now, that's naturally capped by the fact that you that you can't make a check that is more complicated than five purple dice. So that's already built into the system. You can't just say, I'm going to try everything and just hope that I roll really well. Right. What is conspicuously missing from the system is an explanation of how you learn magic, how you gain it, or any talents related to magic that might um, influence the way that you cast or how effective you are as a caster. Um, They leave that open-ended. There's a section that specifically, or or a sidebar rather, that specifically explains learning magic um, and why it's not present. But uh, there's nothing in here that really discusses uh, any talent system built on top of magic. Yeah, I'll be interested to see. Um, We haven't talked about this yet, but uh, Fantasy Flight is planning a series of full-on separate 
uh, setting books for Genesis that are to be used along with the Genesis system. And they already announced their first one. It's their proprietary Runebound setting. I believe that's coming out in the second quarter of uh, this year, 2018. Um, I will be very interested to see if they have sort of D&D-type prescribed spells, like with names, um, that have a certain kind of effect and a certain level of difficulty. I don't know if they will do that, but it seems certainly possible. Then the next section here are vehicle rules. Um, They are, I believe, pretty similar to what's already in the Star Wars systems. Um, Like most vehicle rules, it's a subsystem, so either you engage with it and you invest in it and it's it works for you, or you don't engage in or you don't invest in it, you don't engage with it, and you kind of just make it up as you go along because you know no one wants to learn the subsystem. Yeah, I think it's kind of exactly the same as the next section, which is hacking. It's a mini game in and of itself and hopefully characters who are not pilots or hackers have figured out some other thing that they can do while the hacker or pilot is doing their thing Uh, on a ship it's easier to be like i will you know have a secondary special specialization in gunnery i don't really know what you do in cyberspace which is you know sort of the uh, perennial problem of Shadowrun. right uh, the, the game doesn't solve any of these problems but it does give you a system that uh at least at first glance looks interesting enough to engage with um you know I, I wouldn't use it to completely replace combat for example but um you could definitely run a setting where everyone is some form of hacker um and that would be interesting i will say the the vehicle rules though are complicated in that there are pages of new maneuvers that you can only do when you're in a vehicle and specific critical hits just for vehicles um, if you like that kind of thing and there are certain kinds of people who do you have a lot to play with. Yeah, I, I will say at least they condensed the additional actions into tables so that uh, it's it's one more sheet to print off as a table aid rather than digging through descriptions uh, in the book. So from a layout perspective, they've at least helped to make that as playable as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, then the next section after alternate rules is building an adventure. Um this section doesn't really warrant a whole lot of comment. I mean, the advice is fine, but uh, again, if you aren't sure how to build an adventure, Genesis is probably not really aimed at you. Um, so while it's good advice, it's also probably the section you're likely to skip. Yeah, this is, however, the section that has the information that you might want to know about, you know, how many encounters do you want during the adventuring day? Um, how difficult should an adversary be? Again, it's it's general advice. There isn't a, a formula, really, that you should be using. The next chapter is tones. And I was confused at first because, you know, the tones listed are things like horror or uh, mystery or superheroes. And I was like, wait, what, how is that different from settings? But Genesis makes a distinction. A setting has to do with uh, the location or the time period or the types of characters in a game, while a tone deals with attitude and style. Um, again, there's still a lot of gray area in there, but they they separate them out. Yeah, each of these tones will have uh, an explanation of why you would use it, some of the themes involved, um, and then a, a blurb about how to run those types of games as well as generally a new rule or new set of rules that assist you in um, in running that type of game. So they would be sort of macro level rules that you would introduce into the game at that point. 
Right. So, for example, the horror tone comes with fear rules. And traumas. <laughs> a, <laughs> a new form of damage. <laughs> <laughs> the third damage track. Uh, and sanity. <laughs> so, you know, kind of a well, third and third and a half uh, damage tracks. Okay, so it's the Ghost Walk campaign setting from third edition. Exactly. <laughs> uh, whereas the uh, superhero tone has mm, rules for... Uh, higher starting characteristics, uh, not being damaged by minions, um, and extremely high skill checks. Yeah, so the tones that they cover are horror, intrigue, mystery, pulp, a romance and drama, and superheroes. I love that romance is in here. Like they really, they really said, you know what, we're putting everything in here. And there's even a new rule which allows you to interact with the metagame. Yeah, so this one is if a it's basically the dramatic irony rule, but basically if your character believes something that as a player you know to be false or detrimental to that character, then you gain a story point as a reward. So it helps you uh you know keep that sort of take that downbeat and then turn it into an upbeat in the story as well. So that's it for the rules of the game. Uh you get a pretty lengthy index which is always nice and often neglected in rpgs and then you get um a couple pages of character sheet i i haven't checked but i'm hoping that there are more uh blank or i guess blanker character sheets um available on the website there are yep good okay good um this is a generic one that lists uh all of the standard skills even the ones that aren't necessarily used in every single setting but if you're creating new skills or new talents, uh, it's nice to be able to list them on uh, your own customized character sheet. Yeah, it has a section for custom skills um, that lets you add to the sheet, uh, as well as, you know, it gives you a checkbox. Is this a setting skill? So is it even available in our game? And is it a career skill? So is it part of my character's career? But I, I, I kind of agree. Like, I would rather have a blank sheet where I can just fill in the valid skills and ignore ones that aren't part of our game. Okay, so we've gone through the entire book. Um, Shane, how do you how do you feel about it? Any general observations about Genesis? Well, it's very much a toolkit. Uh, I don't think it is quite a game that you can play. Um, you know, it, it does highlight to me that a game really does require a setting. Um, it really does require plot hooks. It really requires something to put um, a group in motion uh, to play. Yeah, I think we were both kind of surprised as we were reading this. I think we were sort of messaging while we were preparing for this and going, wait a minute, like, is that it? That's it. Oh, everything you need is in is in section three. You don't get anything in settings. Yeah. <laughs> and then it was like, oh, wait, well, there's more a little bit later, but it's still, it's not quite all there, right? <laughs> right. Like, I wish that they had um, sort of picked picked literally any setting and said, okay, we're going to completely flesh out one setting for you so that you could play in this. And maybe that's fantasy, maybe that's sci-fi. It could have been Weird West. I wouldn't have cared. Um, But it would have been nice to have one solid setting that you can just play with like right right out of the gate without having to build something. Yeah, I I will say fantasy is the most fleshed out setting uh, top to bottom in terms of all of the things that need to be built for it. Like fantasy is the most ready to run in the book, I would say, and, and maybe space opera second. Um, 
you could get pretty far in those without anything else. But uh, it was a little surprising. If if you were looking at it to run specifically fantasy and hoping to find fantasy in here, I think you'll be disappointed. Um, but if you were looking for a system that is mechanically sound that will allow you to create your own fantasy setting, I think there's really good building blocks here. Yeah, I was surprised at the depth of the the GM tools um, and the, I guess, honesty with which they were presented. I, I would go so far as to say this is the best Dungeon Master's Guide I've ever read. <laughs> <laughs> um, because it speaks directly to you as the designer of both a story and of, you know, the system uh, and lays its mechanisms bare so that you can keep it working the way it's intended the fifth edition dungeons and dragons dmg is i think the best dmg for dungeons and dragons mm-hmm. uh but this is is absolutely i think the best gm advice that we've had certainly in recent memory uh for that is applicable ca- across all different kinds of systems and uh all different kinds of genres yeah i i feel like really every time the authors speak um it's thoughtful it's insightful uh and it is you know oftentimes it's mechanically specific to genesis but it is broadly applicable to um how to think about designing games uh which is fantastic i mean it it really is like an unexpected like pleasure to read that stuff before we sort of give our verdict on whether or not you should buy this book, um, a bit of information for those of you who already own Edge of the Empire or who have played Edge of the Empire, uh, this is going to feel extremely familiar. If you know how to run it, then you're going to know how to run Genesis. Um, there are, you know, a few setting things or a few tweaks that have been made in Genesis. Um, I think probably the most obvious one will be the talents, uh, the talent pyramid as opposed to the talent trees. Uh, I think that's, I think you're going to welcome that. Um, unfortunately, it's going to be very difficult to sort of take those trees as they exist now and translate them into like what specific tier they should be. I guess you can you can kind of do it by row. Um, that might work. But I think it's probably 50-50 on if you own Edge of the Empire, whether you need to buy this book. Like if you're perfectly happy playing Star Wars and you're not interested in playing anything other than Star Wars, you're not going to get it really anything out of genesis unless you like reading game design material oh yeah no absolutely if you're a star wars player and you want to play star wars definitely don't need this book (laughs) um but if you if you were wondering about like how do i take this system that i like and use it for other types of games like that's what this book does um and I, i think it does that very well yeah, I've definitely seen some people saying, okay, I'm going to take Edge of the Empire uh, and I'm going to try to, I'm going to convert it to a fire, I'm going to hack it for a Firefly, you know, and you don't need to do that much to make it Firefly. Right. Um, I would personally rather use Genesis for that. Yeah. I already said that I'm interested to see what the settings books look like. I I think, though, there will be people out there who are sort of, miffed that they need to buy a genesis book they need to buy one to two packs of dice and then they need to buy a setting book for whatever type of game they want to play if they don't want to build one on their own yeah i think that's a fair criticism um it does seem like an expensive startup cost um you know the the core book is only 40 dollars, which is i think 
low for most 250 plus page uh, core rule books nowadays. Um, certainly, you know, Monty Cook is charging 60. Uh, D&D has three core rule books at $50 a piece. Um, so it, I think for one book, it is a little more expensive than I thought, given how much work you still have to do to play the game. Um, and the dice, you know, they're proprietary dice. So I think they've opened it up as much as possible. They've published the font so that you can create your own tools around it so that you can integrate that into the things that you write. Um, they don't seem to be chasing down any third party dice rolling, um, apps. So that stuff all seems fine. Um, I, I'm not off put by paying $15 for 11 or 12 dice. That's a about what you pay for anything else. Um, and I've never struggled to find a reason to buy more dice. So like that, I don't particularly mind, uh, but it, it is, it, it's a little pricey. So let me ask you this, and I don't know if we have the answer to this. Uh, the rune bound book that is coming out, that's going to be like 250 pages or something like that. It's going to be about the size of this book. Are they doing what they did with the edge of the empire where each successive book is a game in and of itself? Like, if you buy Age of Rebellion, you don't have to have Edge of the Empire to play the game. If you buy Runebound, do you have to have the Genesis book in order to play the game? Uh, I, I will try and get you an answer. It's not a standalone product. So based on the announcement that they made uh, just last week, um, one, so the Runebound book, Realms of Terranoth, is a $50 source book, and it is not independent. So they are expecting you to have the uh, Genesis core rulebook as well. So again, that's another thing to consider. Now, it could be that the Terranoth, the Runebound book, is more substantial than other setting books will be simply because that is their proprietary IP. And when they put out like a Weird West or a, a Hard Sci um, setting book, that it will be thinner and, you know, fingers crossed cheaper. Well, I, I would guess that Netrunner is probably going to be coming down the pike as well. And that one is probably going to be a similar size and similarly fleshed out because that's a pretty broad, well-defined world. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's curious. I, I don't know. I mean, even all in, right, at $90 for the two books plus, say, you buy two sets of dice for the table – at $120, uh, that's about the price of D&D. So if, if you feel that, you know, when, once we see what Realms of Terranoth has in it, um, if that's a comparable level of lore to what's in the Monster Manual um, and, you know, in, I guess in the DMG for <laughs> D&D, that could be a competing product uh, at, a, at a similar price point. It's a little tough to expect it to be cheaper and as complete as D&D, you know. And you save money on minis playing Genesis. That's true. <laughs> and battle maps, battle maps and yep. markers. Uh, yeah, very good point. Yeah, bad news for the third-party market, though. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, overall production quality, it is as you have come to expect from Fantasy Flight Games. It's Because it's not quite as thick as the Dark Heresy core book, it feels a little more stable. Um, which I also like, but the art is great. The feel of the pages, they're pretty thick and um, substantial. Like the, um, the overall fit and finish looks good. Uh, I've heard people have noticed typos and complained online, though I 
have I didn't happen to notice any editing errors, but uh, you know that happens in every book. Yeah, I saw a few, but not as many as were in the second edition Dark Heresy books. Oh, fair enough. Uh, and I will say just one one last observation is I actually read this book almost cover to cover, which I have not done to an RPG book in a long time, uh, including fifth edition D&D. <laughs> Except for all the ones that we reviewed. Uh, no, even those. I mean, realistically, <laughs> you skim stuff, right? Like there's there's nothing that you drain every word on the page. Um, and, and for this book, I, I almost did. It was a good good read for what it was as somewhere between a technical manual and uh and game design advice yeah you could tell that the authors have a love for the material yeah all right so final question shane on fantasy flights genesis is this a buy or a don't buy i think it's a buy with a caveat which is if you are if you want to take advantage of the very good narrative dice system, this is the best way to do it. Um, rather than trying to buy Star Wars and convert back, uh, buy this book, buy some dice, and build the setting and game that you're looking for. Yeah, it is a buy with caveats. But to be fair, that's the same caveat I would give to someone who's asking, you know, which of the three D&D core books do I buy? I mean, if you're playing in a game with six people... Not everyone even needs to have the PHB. Yeah, none, maybe. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, one person needs the DMG, and that's it. One person needs the Monster Manual, and that's it. And, like, at a table of six, maybe two PHBs. Right, yep. So, uh, with this, one person needs this book. Um, two, if you really want to pass it around and take a look at the talents. But for the person who's going to run the game, this looks like a fun game. This looks so modular, um, and I think this is a game that's going to have legs. Uh, I think I'm excited to see the setting books that are coming, and I'm really excited to see the fan base stuff that's coming down the the pipe. Yeah, so let's touch on that just briefly before we sign off. Um, so there's a Reddit community uh, slash r slash Genesis RPG um, that's pretty active. There are already over a thousand members there, which is uh, pretty good for a brand new game that doesn't even really have a setting book published for it. Um, there's also the fantasy flight forums which are pretty solid yeah i'm subscribed to the genesis uh, subreddit and every single day there's a new hack coming out that someone's put together yeah they actually the, the moderators there do, seem to do a good job of driving daily interest um you know it's not just posting artwork of characters the way that some yeah. other rpg <laughs> subreddits are um, and i think as more people publish more of their homebrew stuff or, or their conversions. Like um, the interest in the game is only going to continue to grow. Yeah. I'm hoping that there becomes a sort of semi-official um, moderation of that content so that it's easy to find stuff that is good and play tested. Uh, but you know, that's just a community that will eventually develop. I think. Yeah. I, I do hope they publish some type of uh, license similar to fifth edition where you can, um, use the Genesis name and symbols and, and publish that stuff uh, on our, you know, drive through RPG or whatever. And actually uh, some of these can, can be formally published products, you know, even if their particular IPs aren't made available. Oh yeah. That sounds great. I got a couple of eclipse phase simul spaces that I want to turn into settings <laughs> that no one is going to like. Great. <laughs> All right, so we are running very, very long, as we always do on our reviews, but 
real quick, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sans Carne. That's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrillCast.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. And then before we wrap up, we want to take a moment to thank our Patreon supporters. Yeah, your support is what makes it possible for us to do this every single week. So if you want to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. And we are continuing our march towards our uh, $300 level uh, where we will reward you with a campaign setting review of Forgotten Realms. Which we do not like. But we will love reviewing for you. Right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. What do we have planned for next week's episode? We'll be talking about playing play-by-post games. And in the Character Creation Forge? We're building the mailman. Well, that's it for episode 129 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. 